0: The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, UnitedHealthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.
4: Good morning, it's Monday, September the 16th, 2019. I'm Orla Carmody sitting in for Michael Reid. Delighted to have your company on today's programme. In the beef crisis agreement reached after marathon weekend talks, but independent farmers still not convinced. The latest on the proposed Mornington to draw to Greenway iPads in schools is expensive technology putting a burden on parents, an independent agency to enforce child maintenance, and as the doll gets back to business after the summer recess, speculation on the general election and who will lead the next government. But first, the long-awaited construction of the €30 million Euro RD bypass has stalled again with the news that Transport Infrastructure Ireland, or TII, needs more information. The TII and the CEO of Louth County Council are to appear before the Oireachtas Transport Committee this Wednesday to discuss the review that has been requested by TII on the bypass project. Local TD, Fergus O'Dowd, is the chairperson of the Transport, Tourism and Sport Oireachtas Committee and he joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, uh, Thanks Berger, for Thank you me. for I'll joining <laughs> us, indeed. So, what is going wrong? Obviously, this is long awaited, the bypass. Yes, it's yeah. desperately needed. We know the traffic builds up in RD uh, very considerably. And here we are with another holdback. What's yes, happening?
3: Well, we don't know. And that's why I've asked both the county council and Transport Infrastructure Ireland, who are the national body who provide the funding and other issues for the road to come in uh, on Wednesday to talk about it. And Dolores Monogue, the local chairperson of the municipal council, will also be attending. Uh, there's four point seven three kilometres in the road. There are two bridges. It will cost at least thirty four million and that's been going on since at least two thousand and one. Six million has been spent this year and we're out Dolores and myself are out looking at the actual works, the clearance works that are ongoing right now. So everybody is ready. The job is ready to go to tender. It's ready uh, and now we have a letter from TII uh, I got correspondence from them uh, saying that uh, given the amount of correspondence they have received and issues raised by local residents and others um, this is the important point, TII have requested Loud County Council to review the scheme to consider and address the technical and environmental issues up front in the interests of the residents and the taxpayer. It'll be carried out as quickly as possible but it will result in a delay. So I'm very concerned about that Why has this
4: suddenly come up? And I know obviously you're the chair of the (coughs) Oireachtas Committee and you're also here representing local people so it kind of puts you in in the middle of it but at the same time we need to look at what's happening. Obviously last June we heard that the proposed route was being fenced off that yes. work was going to commence imminently it was going to happen yes, yeah. and suddenly we have this delay. I mean what what are they actually looking for?
3: Well we don't know and uh, I've asked them in fact in my letter to Sean O'Neill who is who is a representative of Transport Infrastructure Ireland I asked specifically for a commitment in relation to the timeline. I asked kind of a given an urgent and immediate clarification regarding the capital commitment which I got about the money being kept and being there so the money is
4: there there's no, no danger of that going elsewhere
3: quite, well, what they actually say they current tiI currently have the funding for this scheme in our funding profiles and that will remain the case but they didn't give me any commitment on the time what the delay is why the delay is there as I understand the residents out uh, out out near where this road is to go that, that that they have had constructive and a good engagement with the county council in a way in a manner that wouldn't delay the scheme because because if there has to be new compulsory purchase made it would delay the scheme for up to 18 months which nobody wants the second thing I'm and, concerned and about is the were environmental issues just
4: sorry to cut to to you um, Ferguson down but we were mm. convinced that all of that work had been done the CPOs were finished the yes. route was agreed Absolutely. it should have been yeah. at that point Yeah. yeah
3: so, so it is a very serious issue and that's why it's a national issue In because this is part of our National Development Roads Plan this must go ahead there's also uncertainty politically in that boat, Fina Fall, in the name of timmy Dooley uh, spokesperson on transport nationally, has said that he's looking again at the roads program, and obviously the Green Party are saying that they're going to basically look again at our at the roads in our national development plan, so the environmental issues obviously are a pro- a prominent in their minds and in mine but if you look but at they it they should
4: t- have been dealt with yeah but they
3: ha- I believe they have been dealt with i mean this has been going on since two thousand and one, but there are huge issues about if the Greens or Fianna Fáil were in fact to stop this road, uh, it would mean that the people of RD would suffer greatly in terms of their health. The the, the fact that there are something like up to 20 trucks an hour, uh, you know, in the Kells Road in RD, parading through that town, uh, fumes uh, all over the place, I mean that's not acceptable. And
4: nobody wants to um, undermine the significance of of environmental issues, but as you say, there was a time for that a number of years ago. Tell me about the the, the residents of Towns Park and Mullins Town Road specifically because they apparently have still got some concerns about the road being bypassed or maybe an extinguished yes, yeah. section of road. There's some issue there regarding the cul-de-sacs. What's happening there?
3: There is. Yeah. Well I spoke to uh, one of the residents this morning who represents them. i just give his first name, Fergus, his name and he told me they've had very constructive engagement with the County Council and that any proposals which they are in favour of and they have discussed with the County Council will Will not uh, involve a new compulsory purchase order or new legal actions you know in terms of due process which would delay the scheme so in other words, what they're saying is that there's nothing that they think needs to happen now that will delay. This scheme on
4: and yet they still have concerns they want to discuss.
3: Well, uh, well, they, they say they have discussed them, but I can't speak for them. Okay, uh, but they will be. They told me they will be at the meeting on Wednesday. And are there the any recommend.
4: underpasses as part of the scheme to the kind problem, of deal with this area? Yes.
3: Well, there is an under there was an underpass proposed, but this is where the environmental issue came in. It's it's very it's subject to very severe flooding, uh, and that is an issue because part of the RD bog is part of this area, and the environmental issues, and indeed, if there were to have an underpass it would flood uh, frequently and that wouldn't be acceptable.
4: So this is not a solution for these particular residents and I presume bridges <coughs> or alternatives were looked at as well? Yeah,
3: well they've looked at I think the, the two things they're talking about uh, one of them is a staggered junction and the other is a roundabout uh, that's in their discussions with the County Council. Uh, so like I, I'm not clear exactly where those discussions are but what I am clear on is that this road must proceed and I'm happy to what the residents tell me that there's nothing in this uh, that that will cause unnecessary delay so why is it being paused that's one word the other word is that this will result in a delay I've asked them for the length of time involved and I haven't got that answer can I, give, can I be given clarification with the expected time delay and uh, to ensure that all possible steps to mitigate any such time delays so the construction proceeds as quickly as possible. So the meeting on Wednesday is to ask that question and to get an answer to it. And if we get the answer, you know, if it's positive, well, then this has been worthwhile. If, it, if the answer is they can't tell us, well, then this project, I believe regrettably, you know, could be delayed significantly. Who will attend the meeting on Wednesday? Well, we have the, the, the Loud County Council and Transport Infrastructure Ireland. They're the people nationally who deal with it. They will both be there. And I've asked the chairperson of the local municipal council, Councillor Loris Minogue, and also the Chamber of Commerce to attend to give their view in terms of how the people are affected and how the local economy will be affected if it doesn't go ahead.
4: Now, you mentioned there the Chambers of Commerce. Obviously uh, the business community, would they be very <coughs> supportive of this? Oh, Oh, very in terms of definitely, the yeah. On their business, yeah. Yeah,
3: because if you go through the town of RD any day, like the the traffic is chock a block. Is coming from the west, going north, so all of that stream is constant. It's frequent. You have over uh, seventeen hundred st- uh, students, school students in RD every day, and you can imagine with all these lorries and all those t- children converging at the same time, all the cars, all the back all the people people are very angry will be very angry if this doesn't go ahead and I think the political point is important to make and I know that uh, Deputy Blacklock is in favour of this and I want to say that very clearly that he is but there's the national issue uh, about our roads and our transport and I think it's important uh, you know that all of us speak up with one voice in County Loud we want the RD bypass and we want it now
4: all right. Uh, just moving on then um, uh, Fergus O'Dowd to uh, the meeting uh, uh, this afternoon between the uh, President of the EU Commission, uh, Jan-Col Juncker and uh, the British Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson for lunch today. Obviously uh, the withdrawal agreement without the backstop is, is on the table, um, although it is being speculated that the backstop is inching closer. What do you think will happen at the, the, the meeting this afternoon? I know it's only speculation
3: but sure. in terms of how... Of course, well so, I hope it's successful. It's the only meeting that are going to have before the the crunch meeting in October when they are when a court, the to blanche is going to walk away. So it's hugely important. It is clear from the media uh, and listening to other people talking that there are obviously ongoing significant contacts, debates, discussions, and if they work, it's the job of politicians, uh, north and south, and in England and in Europe, to make this work if they can. Britain are going; that's clear, uh, but we can't have the chaos that they're talking about. So anything that improves the possibility of a positive outcome for our economy, North and South, for our peace process is very welcome. So, like, I won't second guess what Boris is going to do, whether he's going to burst out of his chains Nobody can a guess him, that's for sure. But, but I'll tell you, he's he, he doesn't impress me anyway, at all.
4: But obviously when we're talking about um, a backstop, as we said, this speculation of it inching closer, you kind of wonder, is it wishful thinking because this is so important to us or do we see any signs of any kind of give coming, do you think?
3: Well, there seems to be, uh, obviously, reading the tea leaves of coming from the DUP, I mean, Geoffrey Donaldson is very clear on wanting a solution. You see, because everybody that lives and works on this island know that we're all going to lose jobs if a hard Brexit happens. We're still going to lose jobs even in a soft Brexit. So what's important is we keep as many jobs as we can, keep the economy going, our agriculture, our rural tourism, our border counties, our peace process. Everybody knows whether you doing. Sinn Féin or whatever you know that this is in trouble so we've got to make sure that, that, that it mitigates as little as possible and that means a soft Brexit it means a deal to be done or it means, you know, if needs be if, if there's no pleasing Boris then it's up to the British Parliament to put a new Prime Minister in place if they can or alternatively, you know, to go for a second election, and I was in England at the weekend and there are all the issues, but people are really fed up with this, carry on and people elect politicians to find Find solutions, you know, not to wave flags we've got to get a solution, and I believe I believe there is movement, but whether it's enough or not, i don't know. Now obviously
4: we said at the top of the programme that the doll recess is finishing tomorrow and you're you're all back in business and there was a lot of speculation over the weekend regarding this uh, Red Sea poll and that uh, Fianna Fáil have gained some ground and <coughs> they're up at uh, a one percentage point behind Fianna Gael, they're snapping yeah. at your heels. Will well, that we, be <laughs> the order of business when you go back tomorrow? Well I
3: think we'd bark back as well. We bark <laughs> back. <laughs> well. I tell you look I think people, what I like about the poll is that the, the middle ground parties are, are gaining because as the economy is improving, I mean there are more people working now today than ever before in this country ever. So that's a huge plus. Obviously, we have problems with housing. We've problems with health. We have some issues here now with transport, uh, and obviously we, we have the green agenda to deal with effectively as well. So, like in, you know, these are all very very important. But I I think that people are thinking more in the long term than in the short term, and the future I believe in our, of. You know, in, I, th- I believe our party, our leader Leo Varadkar is doing an excellent job and I know a lot of people out there would be texting uh, agreeing with me and maybe not but that's, I think, I don't want the extremes I don't want the extreme left or the extreme right I'm concerned about what's happening in Luke Dorard. I think it's wrong that, um, you know, I, I value diversity, I value people from Africa, from all countries coming to work here and I think that's a hugely important issue to support and I think that uh, I, you know, I, I'm just very concerned and at that to me is unacceptable uh, that people are not welcome or that communities will res- respond in the way that indeed, they do indeed
4: it's not the ireland we, we we want to be a part of but finally on on the, the issue of of Fáil snapping at your heels it was speculated over the weekend that a general election won't be called that the confidence and supply agreement will go on to allow you long enough to deal with the winter and the housing crisis and the trolley the trolley sure. crisis and leave you there so that the uh, finnfall can actually gain even further by the time the general election well, will be that, that's
3: one we're looking at but the other way and I'm not talking to you personally is looking at the facts and saying the Lord's Hospital uh, they've turned around all that trolley weight they, they've transformed our health there's huge investment in health in Drahat, there's five new theatres opening early next year there are new wards So awards. you're
4: proud of the local um, effort if not the national effort
3: Well I'm, I'm very proud of the local effort housing we're building, we're building we built 20,000 houses last year it'll be at least 25 this year it is a serious problem it's not going to go away because we have to build those houses or get them get other people you know to To to, to rent them out, and that's a huge problem as well.
4: All right, Deputy Ferguson Dowd, thank you for joining us for today. That's where we will leave it. We'll take a quick break. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. And so to the beef talks. And don't forget, you can always text or WhatsApp us on 086 658. We love to hear from you, or you can phone in at 1850 715 958 and we will take your comments. So although it was announced last night that agreement had been reached, independent farmers are saying that pickets on factories might continue. Seven farming organisations met over the weekend for the crisis talks with Meat Industry Ireland, which represents the processors. And here with the details of what went on over the weekend is Hannah Quinn Mulligan from the Irish Farmers Journal. Good morning, Hannah. Good morning. So, Hannah, it was a long, long weekend for all of you. I'm sure you were there and, and uh, following proceedings with great interest. G- give us the timeline roughly what happened and where did it end up?
5: So talk started on Saturday morning at about half nine. And what happened was that farm organisations and Meet Industry Ireland wouldn't actually meet together in the same room. You know, there was a lot of animo- animosity on I the both I can imagine. Sides. Yeah, things were very, very tense so uh, Minister Michael Creed actually had to um, go to the farm organisations first, then go back to Meet Industry Ireland then back to the farm organisations and it took an awful long time so at around 11 o'clock on Saturday night, Minister Creed was meeting farm organisations one by one to put a preliminary deal um, that had been offered by Meet Industry Ireland so all in all, talks continued over Sunday night um, into Sunday daytime and lasted over 30 hours so it a very very long drawn out process Tell me Hannah uh, before you
4: go any further there are seven farming organisations why are we seeing such a splintering in the farm movement which would have been very effectively represented by the IFA for many years and yet we're seeing the emergence of all of these different groups
5: yeah, it kind of puts me in mind of that Martin McDonough quote, can you splinter from a splinter group? Yes. Um, you know, farmers will know that the beef plan movement emerged and almost kind of like a tidal wave of support that it, it suddenly g- garnered, it tapped into the seam of frustration that farmers had been feeling for a long time, beef farmers in particular. Um, and was this WhatsApp phenomenon where uh, all these farmers were joining these WhatsApp groups, Um, and coming together. And then seven weeks ago, uh, the beef plan called a protest. Outside m- marts and retailers and factories, I and mean, the one outside factories really, really stuck. Then, of course, all the legal action and injunctions happened, um, instigated by factories against farmers. The beef plan took a step back, and as the beef plan took a step back, this new group emerged uh, called Independent Farmers of Ireland, who said that they were representing farmers um, who were still protesting independently. independently. So, uh, you had the beef plan, you had the Independent Farmers of Ireland, and then you had all the main farmer organisations that have been there for ages. So Um, this is
4: what made it so cumbersome, as you say, for Minister Creed to have to go around and get the views of everybody. Yes, and then of
5: course what you have is the main farm organisations who would be used to dealing with negotiations and then the newer boys on the block who aren't so used to dealing with negotiations and no one wanted to appear weak or appear to be backing down. So talking to people inside and texting people inside as negotiations were going on, there was no one, everyone wanted to save face. You know, no one wanted to be seen to be the ones backing down because, of course, at the end of the day, farm organizations don't want to lose members to other farm organizations as well. And the talk around the table was that it was the independent farmers of Ireland who were perhaps a little bit difficult to manage within the negotiations themselves because they are new to this. You know, they've they've never, ever done it before. Um, and that was part of the crux of the matter that made negotiations go on so long.
4: Now, we heard um, uh, 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 this morning, there was or late last night, a statement issued by the minister's people saying that acceptance had been uh, achieved and agreement reached. And then, of course, we heard this morning that, in actual fact, independent farmers are not committing to, achieve, uh, uh, to the agreement. Now, the Beef Plan group, uh, I heard Hugh Doyle earlier this morning saying that they are recommending in the agreement so even within the splinter groups there's disagreement
5: there is yeah and even within if you went to a you know, a different gate. If you went to ABP Care compared to, you know, Liffey Meats outside James Duff up, up in Cavan, you'd probably get two versions of events. But, you know, fundamentally there were seven groups in the negotiations and the Independent Farmers of Ireland did commit to recommend the deal to farmers at the gates. And I had a government source ring me up last night and confirm that, you know, because they wanted to be very, very clear that independent farmers did agree to this. And when... Uh, Alison Devere Hunt, one of the spokespeople, came out of negotiations yesterday. She said to one of our correspondents immediately that it was incredibly important for farmers to get off the picket lines and that if they looked and read the deal, that they would see the merits of
4: it. So you're saying that a spokesperson for independent farmers was saying one thing, but another spokesperson obviously reported to the media this morning another thing. So there's a spinter even within that group.
5: Yeah, but not just perhaps that, but I think also independent farmers are worried about losing face themselves and want to distance themselves from the negotiation in case there is any backlash from farmers at the gates. So it's a very difficult one to call because the next 24 hours are going to be crucial. And if we consider what's on the line as well, you know, this was a second agreement that was made. And it took over 30 hours of talks over a weekend between seven farming organisations, Meat Industry Ireland and government officials to agree it. I doubt if this breaks down that farmers, will well, that stakeholders will want to go back for a third round of talks. And we have the National Farming Championships. And I very much doubt after the hoo-ha last year with the weather that Anna-Marie or Anna May want to see any trouble at the ploughing championships as well in terms of protest. So there's an awful lot riding on this in the next
4: And hours. as a reporter, Hannah Quinn Mulligan from the, the IFA, Irish Farmers Journal, obviously you've been covering this very closely um, over, over the summer. Do you think that at this point that this deal will go through? And I know it's speculation, but do you think it's gone as far as it will go and that the best deal was on the table at the end of the day?
5: I mean, nothing was on the table seven weeks ago when protests started. So farmers have to take that into account as well, that the bonus payment they're going to get for cattle processed under 30 months has gone from 12 cents to 20 cents um, per kg. So, you know, that that's something. And it's a hard one to call because basically what you're dealing with is perhaps a minority of farmers who could scupper the whole deal for the majority. You know, protests have been going on for seven weeks. At this stage, farmers at the end of the day need to pay bills and they're probably unhappy with the price. I know an awful lot of them are. But when you have cattle in a shed and they're going overage and you're going to lose your bonus, uh, it's a scary thing for farmers and you have to bear in mind the weather is getting worse.
4: So the and to nobody, nobody is, is undermining the, the difficult time they have had and the amount of money that went out of their business. I think it was 150 euro per head of cattle taken away from them over the last uh, short period. So we do understand that. But interesting to see a young organisation, MACRA, President Thomas Duffy saying that there's 24 million now going into the farmers pockets as a result of this deal. Uh, 150,000 additional animals going into the bonus scheme. So as you say, something was achieved there are tangible achievements here
5: yeah there was, but there's been a lot of dissension in the ranks, not just in say Beef plan members or independent farmers' members but even mockcker members last night um, I was privy to a few conversations, and there there were some there were some words flying around about, about the negotiations, but I think probably what's disappointing is that farmer anger is spilling over now after negotiation. You know it would have been a lot more constructive if if people within organisations had come forward beforehand. And to make their feelings felt rather than afterwards, because an awful lot now is riding on keeping this deal going. You know, we've reached the stage where farmers' livelihoods are, are riding on it. and right. Oh, nice. They're not happy with the price, but at the, it's the best deal on offer and it's a step in the right direction.
4: And as you say, next 24 hours will be crucial. Hannah Quinn Mulligan from the Irish Farmers Journal, thank you for joining us today. We will be returning to the beef story um, later in the programme for for people interested in that and uh, very, very crucial for our farm community. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Hannah. Now, anyone with a handful of young people at home, as I do, know how difficult it is to get them on the road. The cost of insurance is prohibitive and the slow progress in tackling the crisis is putting significant Financial stress on learner drivers, and joining us now with this is Connor Faulkner from the AA Road Watch. Good morning, Connor.
6: Good morning, Orla. Hi.
4: Hello, and how are you now? Obviously, uh, young drivers getting them going is just ridiculous. There was a time when they were on the, the the parents' policy as a named driver, and eventually got the brownie points to get their own policies. But even that is improve, is proving so difficult. It's even hard to get them as on as a named driver these days.
6: Well, yes, it is, and in a sense, Orla, this is an old problem because it's never been great for young drivers. I mean, as they start out on their driving career, um, it, it feels as if the deck is stacked a little bit against them because in insurance terms, you're sort of treated as if you're very high risk until you earn Um, the credit, earn the reputation over a couple of years, and then your price will come down. And in a sense, we've sort of known that that's part of the process of learning how to drive. Your first couple of years insurance, they're going to be expensive. But I think in recent times, that's a situation that has worsened. And we know that uh, young people are feeling essentially disenfranchised by it. They're just, for many, many people, unless you've got chunky parental support behind you um, you know, to help you financially, it just seems unattainable. And um, in, in, in the cities in Dublin, for example, lots of young people, there's almost a demographic there that young people just aren't bothering to drive. They're just not taking it up. Uh, but outside Dublin, where Realistically, I mean, if you're if you're living in rural Ireland and you know you want to go to college, you want to take job opportunities, you want to sort of fully be entitled to participate in Irish society, you pretty much need to drive. Well,
4: that is certainly an issue, and in our demographic here, Loudmeath, uh, an awful lot of young people would have to drive simply because they live in rural areas on on minor roads, and the the bus the bus infrastructure just wouldn't be there to get them to school or college. So it's terribly important that we as a society do something about this what can we do?
6: Well it, it's, a, it's a symptom of a broader problem I mean it's felt pretty acutely by young drivers but this is the problem that's been running for years and it is the cost of motor insurance in Ireland and the reasons underneath it why it is so bloody expensive and it, you know you, there's lots of commentary and conversation about this to oversimplify it what happens is that the legal industry collectively hoovers a vast amount of money out of the kitty. The insurance industry collectively doesn't care about that because they're able to charge the punter. And those two you know, spend a lot of time trying to blame each other for what's going wrong. But they're both part of it. Um, in, 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 as far as the insurance industry is concerned... There's a degree of complacency there. They, they, you know, they, they, they will compete for the sort of 85 90% of the market, which are the mainstream consumers, the likes of you and me, Orla, sad to say, you know, we're, we're relatively plain vanilla as far as an insurance risk is concerned. But the moment you're high risk, if you're a returning immigrant, for example, or you have a claims record, or you have penalty points, or you're a young person, the insurance industry collectively... Just doesn't compete that hard for your business. They're nervous about claims. They just don't compete that hard, and and hence. You are an outlier and 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 it's very expensive
4: we've covered that on this program before, and as you say, the kind of uh, rock throwing if you like, between the insurance industry and the legal profession, and in the meantime, the insurance industry seems to make great um profits every year, and the legal profession carries on um encouraging and advertising people to take at people to take claims, so it seems to go on and on as you say, and we keep having this conversation, but nothing ever seems to change.
6: Well, I think that's true, Uh, and uh, the insurance industry makes super profits every year, that's not quite true, Orla, because unfortunately, as a collective, they make super losses some years as well. And we have, uh, broadly speaking, what is a seven-year cycle, if you just look at it. Uh, you know They start competing for business. The, the premiums come down. You know, suddenly, we think the problem is solved. And then the claims mature on those premiums. They realize that they've actually been losing money where they thought they were making it. The pendulum swims, swings back the other way. They have to, you know, We get the odd insurance company failing on us. They have to shore up the the reserves and everybody's prices goes up, and then we're back in the crisis again. The long-term fix for this has really been laid out by a pretty good piece of work that was done a few years ago. It's the Cost of Insurance Working Group, which was chaired initially by Owen Murphy when he was in the Department of Finance. It's Michael Darcy now. But that wrote down on paper a lot of the significant fixes that have to be put in place. And what they are about is stabilizing compensation amounts so that even if we're generous in Ireland compared to other countries, even if whiplash is three times here what it is in the UK, which it is, but at least it would be predictable and you won't have that roulette wheel aspect of the case. And the, the roulette wheel aspect of the case is pernicious. Some court might treat you like you've won the lottery. Another court might send you out with a flea in your ear. And, and the so there seems there, to
4: be far too much discretion within the judicial system well, in indeed. terms of the, the amounts that are being allocated.
6: Indeed. And in that uh, area live the legal profession, the, 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 the legal industry and you know they collectively, I mean each individual solicitor is just doing the right thing by their individual client, they're trying to get them the most money but the practical effect of that is, is the that compo
4: culture that we're, we're, all, we're all so aware of
6: no, no, Nobody mentions swings Indeed, you know indeed, going? we I mean, won't that's go that's there extreme.
4: Finally Connor, what can a young person do listening to this who is really struggling with their insurance other than shop around, what can you advise them?
6: Yeah. Okay. Well, they're probably going to throw a stone at the radio and feel like cursing me. But, but unfortunately, I, I wish there was a better way to say this. But unfortunately, uh, you 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 simply have to endure the fact that the first two years, probably, of your insured life as a motorist are going to be very expensive. And painful, you know, indeed. And, and painful. Now, the only bright side is that it does come down, because once you have a couple of years' experience, you become that attractive mainstream consumer that they actually compete for. So, you, you, you know, I, I would say, if you're going to college, for example, think of it like your degree. Think of your process of becoming a driver as a three-year process, during the first two of which you'll pay, through the nose but it, it does get better All so right Conor you to seem to be saying to
4: too. them to, to grin and bear it uh, um, right. we have to leave it there thank you so much Conor Faulkner from AA Roadwatch not too good news there for young drivers but uh, a, a nice analogy uh, treat it like the college degree just keep keep working with it still to come on the programme the latest on the proposed Mornington to draw to Greenway and iPads in schools is expensive technology putting a huge burden on parents we'll take a break Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. Now, it used to be shoes, school bags, books, uniforms, but now hard pressed parents are turning to the St. Vincent de Paul for help with the cost of iPads and other digital technology. And the charity has made a call for an investigation by the Department of Education into the cost of these. Devices now mandatory in some schools. The Sir Vincent de Paul also wants questions asked about the social impacts of using these devices in classrooms. And joining us here to discuss this is Marcella Stacham, the social justice policy officer with the Vincent de Paul. Good morning, Marcella. Good morning. Now, um, you have been receiving, or you have in the past, had 250 to 300 calls a day from worried parents. I presume that's coming up to -to back-to-school time and all the expenses we outlined. What kind of things are they saying to you?
7: Yes, that's right. We received a huge amount of calls again this year, um, a 4% increase. Um, The calls relate to back-to-school costs, so mainly got to do with school books, um, school uniforms, voluntary contributions and this year we have seen um, an increase in parents asking for help um, for digital devices um, to teach the curriculum. So help with um, paying for iPads or tablets um, for their child's education.
4: Now, obviously, um, an awful lot of the schools are moving towards this and moving towards technology is good. I suppose we have to welcome it and it's it's where the kids are. They're digital natives. We're the digital immigrants and we know this. But at the same time, it, it is a burden on parents. And you question not only the cost, but the actual implications of the additional screen time.
7: Yeah, well, I suppose our primary concern would be with the use of digital devices in school is the cost involved which in many instances remains the responsibility of parents. And that really is our, our main concern. Um, we have had calls from very worried parents um, saying that they have to pay up on €1,000 for, for an iPad. Uh, so that's a significant cost for any parent, and um, particularly uh, parents that would have more than one child at school.
4: And is it literally as bald as that, where the child gets a note in the school bag go out and buy an iPad and spend a €1,000 on it? Surely it's more sensitively put than that.
0: Um,
4: Whatever way it's done, um,
7: we we would know from our members that, you know, there is quite good engagement with parents and and with the school in relation to um, -to back-to-school costs. Uh, But whatever way it's done, unfortunately, the the costs remain significant because... um, we would see costs, not just for digital devices, but, you know, there's also cost there for school books if you're not using a digital device. And um, There's school uniform. There's all the other costs that we don't really take into account that happen throughout the year. So there could be, like, transport costs. There could be costs involved with um, part of your curriculum. So maybe a field trip, for example, or transition year costs, in particular, are a major source of stress for parents.
4: Yes, you often hear parents say that that they they dread the note in the school bag because it's always looking for more money and really it it's it's very tough on parents to keep producing the money for the trip or the book or or whatever the issue might be. But tell me about this working group you've called to be established.
7: Yeah, we've asked the the department of education to set up a a task force or a working group to really examine uh, the use of digital devices in schools. And as I said, our, our particular concern is really around the the cost involved. Because what we're primarily concerned about is if um, a family cannot afford the, the iPad or the tablet um, for use to teach the curriculum, then that that child or that <coughs> excuse me that child or young person is going to be losing out. <coughs> they cannot participate uh, fully in their education. And that's where our real concern is, because, you know, um, SVP members really, really see that education is a route out of poverty.
4: And when you when you say, you know, uh, somebody can't afford it, there's also the kind of the social stigma or isolation for the child whose parents can't afford it coming into school the following week and the following week and they still haven't produced this piece of technology they're supposed to produce. And how does the child feel about that, I suppose, being the only one in the class or one of three or four in the class who don't have them yet?
7: Yes, exactly. Like It really does hinder um, a child or a young person's future, um, to put it bluntly, because if that child or young person feels different in any way um, because they don't have the resources or the materials, the need to, to progress in education, that really does hinder, you know, how they feel about school and wanting to go to school, and then that does have long-term effects on their educational outcomes. So our overall um, recommendation is that, you know, any of the resources or any of the materials that's needed to teach the curriculum. So for example, school books or t- digital devices, this should be um, provided by the Department of Education and Skills so that parents um, don't have this stress and indeed young people and children don't have this added stress about going back to school or going into the classroom without um, all the materials.
4: Are you suggesting that the department should be carrying the full cost of the device? well
7: i think we could we could look at i think that's where we're asking about the setting up the working group um you know the, we could explore other options so perhaps we could look at um rent uh, text like in similar to a textbook rental scheme could there be a a digital rental scheme that type of thing so i think there there are all options that could be explored there and also perhaps the department could um liaise more with the the companies that are providing the digital software and equipment to see if there is cost saving measures there to be to be taken advantage of
4: yes surely if there was bulk buying surely there would be a, a significant discount for educational purposes and as you say even the companies behind this technology surely they would like to be associated with um education it would be in their interest wouldn't it to offer some kind of a discounted scheme
7: yes exactly and you know, our, as our I said, our concern really is around the cost. So whatever that can be done to reduce cost to parents is really, you know, vital for, you know, a child or a young person to progress and enhance their education.
4: Well, uh, hopefully that um, working group will come to be established and we will see some uh, movement in this area. Marcella Stakem, Social Justice Policy Officer with Vincent DePaul. Paul. Thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reid Reed on, on LMFM. FM. No, we're going to Marie Cairns with our uh, weekly roundup of your texts. And what have you got for us this morning, Marie? Daily even. Or daily even, I should say, <laughs> daily.
8: Um, well, we've had some response already to the interview at the top of the show with Deputy Fergus O'Dead in relation to the RD bypass and what's uh, happening there. Mary, cannot believe that the RD bypass is on shaky ground it feels like this project has been around for years, so why is it taking so long to get across the fresh line, or the finishing line? The town, she says, is choked choked with traffic every evening and all over the weekend, and it's extremely difficult for people living in the area. So Mary worried about that and what's going to happen. We've also had a text in from Fran, and Fran says it would answer Mr O'Dead better if he got on with the Slane bypass. So clearly that's uh, something that's of concern to Fran wanting the Slane bypass to happen Joe from RD calmly me suspicious but wondering why the RD bypass might be stalled just because of concerns raised by residents is it not part and parcel of any major construction project we have been waiting for this for years and pressure should be put on to make sure that it's not delayed so that's from him. Uh,
4: well, obviously, uh, Slane is equally uh, of, of interest to people because obviously the talk about it has been bypassed there for years as well. So similar concerns, I'm sure, by local residents there in Slane as well as with RD.
8: Absolutely. Moving, Can we move on then maybe just to a couple in relation do. to the beef crisis? Uh, James from Trim says, Orla, there was great celebrations yesterday when it appeared that a deal was reached and then not even an hour later, you had a group saying that they had neither accepted or rejected it. The independent farmers either signed up or they didn't, says James. James. It's very confusing. And on that point, another listener says, unless the farmers who are still protesting outside factories withdraw, there will be no deal at all. And that comes in from Tommy. The ordinary farmers need to agree to what's going on.
4: Well, I think um, the confusion is because of all of these splinter groups that we were discussing this morning on, on the item we did, and obviously the independent farmers are a very recently formed group. So clearly they're not as cohesive yet as maybe they might be, and maybe one element of them said one thing and another element said another. So I think that might have been the problem. And apologies about the confusion with the, the sound levels on the microphone. I hope we have it fixed out. Was uh, we, you were coming and going there a little bit, oh, Mary? But with, we're all right. With
8: my level uh, my loud voice, you should be able to hear You'll me. Be fine. You'll be fine. <laughs> Just staying with the beef talks, then, Racy's says that the beef dispute is fast becoming even more of a mess than the Brexit debacle. One side are saying that they've reached a solution, but yet the farmers are not happy and insist they will continue with their protests at the meat plants, all the while the farmers and the meat plant workers are being left in limbo so a lot of confusion surrounding uh, the beef deal so to speak
4: and as as we heard earlier I think the next 24 hours are going to be very crucial in it so hopefully a bit more
8: clarity for people um, after today. That's right and just finally Anne wants to know if a resolution was reached why are there still farmers at the picket line why are they still protesting well obviously there'll be no deal farmers are still protesting because that was one of the stipulations as far as I understand. It was that, indeed. Yes.
4: It seems to have been that the, the deal is that they do call off the, the the pickets but some people will actually um want to, to, to keep going perhaps but hopefully that will be resolved uh, later today. Yes. So thanks indeed for that. No problem and I might come back with a few more. If we do indeed because stay where you are and come back in a couple of minutes with um some more uh, comments on that and we're joined now by Councillor Sharon Tolan. Uh, you're very welcome this morning and obviously you're here today to talk to us about uh, greenways and obviously the success of greenways around the country I think you'd say is un- undisputed mm-hmm. and we've seen former railway lines canal routes river walks all around the country and become hugely popular with locals, um, locals and tourists alike and now we're, we're, there's a plan to develop one here in the heart of Ireland's ancient East tell us about that uh, Sharon Tobin Mornington to uh daughter. good morning orla um yeah look at I, um, as you
0: said um the success of greenways elsewhere in the country is just phenomenal uh, you know it's undisputed um we've been working the boeside trail committee i I think have been working on this section of the route for probably about a decade now to be honest with you um Mead County Council have been working on this route for the past two years um you know, we have to take into consideration environmental factors and it is quite complicated um, to get a planning application prepared for something of this scale but we have um, a proposed route ready. It's on non statutory um, public consultation at the moment, which means um, it's open for views from the public. So it's not set in stone just yet.
4: Now, I know you have a couple of public meetings organised to get mm-hmm. those views, and we'll hear about those in just a moment. Mm-hmm. But first of all, just what will it look like? You have the plans in front of you. What will it yeah, look like? Look Give us it, an idea. Uh,
0: you know, it, it it will look fantastic um you know you you you've both probably used the the, the section there at at Old bridge out to Oldbridge from Drata it's a beautiful area um you know many of us drive along the the marsh road there out to Mornington it's absolutely glorious views um so very similarly it will be a section of Greenway um running along primarily along the roadside in certain sections it will dip down then along the, the, the Boyne River where the, the road comes up a bit higher uh, it's difficult to explain but then it will come into Mornington Village um, and right down to the Maiden Tower into the sand dunes. And
4: will it be constructed in parts like the existing old bridge one where you need a, a normal path or you have a kind of a gravel yeah. path along a section and then you need to go over some buggy so, ro- yeah, sections so you build materials. a kind of a bridge
0: and then you keep yeah, going. There'll be and various materials for bikes and walkers, and walkers and everything. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it is... there's not a day goes by and I'm sure all of my council colleagues would say the same there's not a day goes by that I don't get representations from people in relation to safer footpaths and cycleways. People want to be able to walk and cycle. Um, You know if they're going into the village for, for a pint of milk if they're going to school they want to walk safely and you just can't do that on our roads at the moment. You just can't.
4: Now, obviously, for those not part of the area, the old bridge, the existing section, is north of the river, and mm. this section we're now looking at is south of the river. Will mm. they connect up? Yes. Uh, there's a the section plan. through. Yeah.
0: There's a section through Drogheda
4: that's already signposted.
0: Uh, that needs to be tweaked a little bit, um, and we need to just finalise our agreement with Louth County Council in relation to exactly where we'll come into kind of under the viaduct. So there's still a, a little bit of tweaking to be done, but that's why we're going out now to get the views of the public um, and groups as well. You know there's plenty of running groups and cycling groups out there that would love to see a facility like this provided. Um, Part of of the the plan is also some uh, traffic calming measures there'll be um, a pedestrian crossing at the educational campus there where Drogheda Grammar is and the Educate Together school uh, which means that kids coming from Drogheda to access the secondary school or the primary school would be able to walk and so cycle and also from Mornington.
4: I'm going to bring you back in here Marie mm. because I know when the Old Bridge section was vandalised last year a part of the walkway was set on fire I know you were tweeting about it personally you had a big vested interest <coughs> in it
8: you were outraged very well, much Well, well I think I think everybody was outraged. And I suppose the big question now is when is that going to be repaired? So I'm hoping Sharon might have some good news for us. I
0: don't. I don't have a timeline. And to be honest with you, the repair, the temporary repair that they did was so good (laughs) that we may not do a final, you know, fix to it. Um, You know, the concern is, first of all, we would need to get a a serious amount of funding to repair it to the, the original state. And then what happens? Is, is it then become a target then for somebody to come back and do the same thing again? You know, the the, the fix that they put on it has worked out so well that it may
4: remain. But, you know, we're still uh, we're still looking at that. I remember when going out to look at it myself shortly uh-huh. after it was vandalised and I was looking at the construction of the walkway, which was made from the heaviest duty material yeah. you could possibly imagine. And it struck me that the intent of vandalism to get that to go on fire must oh, have been, been exhausting. Extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, why would you go to such an effort to set that on fire? It, it was
0: extraordinary. It's, it's baffling, baffling. I can't can't understand why anybody would want to do something like that. And the determination section, to yeah, succeed in getting yeah, it to take fire. Yeah. Never would have thought it was flammable. It's not flammable. But I mean, obviously, when when something is is poured with with. Um, petrol or whatever they used uh, it, it was just yeah the intent to get it uh, lit on fire was just incredible and it's such a sad thing to do you know I mean it became very personal as Marie said it became very personal for people um, and the local community raised a lot of funds as well just That's over right. 10,000 euros and um, the the cleanup costs involved were in excess of twenty five thousand um, because there were a lot of trees damaged as well and had to be removed um, and it's such an environmentally sensitive area as well you know so it is this section now going out to Mornington um, there are a lot of environmentally um, uh, constraints as well which is why we've had to keep most of it roadside. Um, so look at
4: and because you're going through (coughs) marshland and obviously the bird life and the wildlife and all of that I mean obviously it has to be sensitively developed that the walkers and the cyclists don't interfere with that ecology yeah
0: exactly we've got to get a a good balance uh, Orla in this you know we 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 have such beautiful areas Uh, we want to promote them and we want to use them we want to to to, to see them and, and, and get plenty of use of them but at the same time we we need to protect the environment too so this proposed route um Meath County Council are of the firm view. uh, They will get that balance. Um, So the the plans are on um, the website, but I just felt they're also available for viewing out in the council offices in Duleek and in Navan. But I just felt that's during office hours and for people who are working, they don't want to be taking time off work to go and view uh, maps. But it, it really is of, of a lot of interest. So tell to us about
4: your public meetings and obviously all so, welcome to those. <clears> yeah, and absolutely.
0: You, you won't be, you know, anybody that comes along, there won't be any long speeches or anything like that. It really is. All of the maps will be up on the walls. Uh, you can browse. There'll be two hours from half past seven till half past nine. Um, take a good look people can take photos of of sections that particular sections that they're interested in Um, and then I'm asking people then to come back with their views to Meath County Council whether they're positive or negative Uh, we really need support for this so if we're going to get it over the line and we're going to secure funding to construct it we will need a lot of positive submissions we will need people to say yes this is something I want to
4: see in our area. Well, uh yeah, I'm into that because it would be such an amenity. And the first meeting is tonight in the D hotel yeah. at seven thirty. Seven thirty. And it'll go on till about what time? About nine thirty. About nine thirty. But people can come and go. I presume come and they go. don't have to Absolutely. stay. Absolutely. Yeah. And if and I can't answer
0: anybody's questions tonight, I'll take take a note and I'll get back to them in the coming days. And the next meeting
4: then again is Wednesday, September the twenty fifth, in yeah. the Village Hotel in, in Betty's, Betty's town. town again at seven thirty. yeah. So hopefully people can make it and finally do you think you'll get the funding for it?
0: Well the, f- the first step is is the planning permission you yeah. know so that's that's a, a major thing i mean you know um it will be on board planola will be making the decision so um we need is, we need to tweak anything that needs to be tweaked now um so if anybody has any concerns uh, we want to get them sorted now with people and resolve any of their issues so that when we go to onboard Planola with the planning application, there will be just positive submissions and, and you know, get it over the line with planning. And public support and public planning support.
4: and public support. We'll yeah. get it
8: there. All right, Councillor uh, Sharon Toland, thank you for joining us. Back to you, Marie Kearns. Have we any more just, comments? Yes, in? we have. And I've just time for one more because I'm conscious of the clock ticking. Uh, just in relation to our conversation around young drivers struggling to meet the cost of getting on the road. Uh, We had Geraldine in touch who says, my daughter... Got her first driver's licence after spending a fortune on lessons. She bought her first car, a second-hand vehicle. Her insurance, Orla, is costing nearly more than the car. It's an absolute joke, says Geraldine. So thanks to her for that and to everybody for being in touch today so far. And thank you indeed, um, Marie Cairns. And we always welcome your calls and your comments. You can
4: text us on 086 1800 658 or you can phone us on 1850 And we'll take a break.
1: Michael,
4: Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, a poll at the weekend has found that it's all to play for politically with only one percentage point now separating Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael in the popularity stakes. The Sunday Business Post Red Sea poll taken last week showed Fianna Fáil increasing its support to 28%, just one point behind Fine Gael at 29%. Later this week, when the doll resumes after the summer is this, no doubt there will be lots of talk of a general election when it might happen and what might the result be. And here now to discuss this and more is Mead West Fianna Fáil TD, Shane Castles. Uh, good morning, Shane, and thank you for joining us.
2: Good morning, Orleth.
4: So, are you taking heart from this poll? Is this positive for you and your party? What What do you make of it?
2: Well, I suppose you're going to, I've got to give the atypical answer that politicians give in terms of polls and pinch of salts and all of that. But of course, when you see a 4% rise, um, you welcome that. And it is, I think, indicative of the work that Michal Martin is leader uh, and the team in general are doing on the ground across Ireland. Remember as well that normally during the summer recess, it's the government that rise in the polls because there's no doll in session uh, to be keeping the government's failures in the public eye, in the media. Uh, and there's no commentary on that. So usually governments expect a bounce during the summer and uh, for them to actually um, widen the gap between themselves and the opposition. Instead, the gap has significantly narrowed uh, down to 1%. They're neck and neck as the Sunday Business Post said yesterday. Uh, and in that respect, um, it's certainly, I think, reflective of the of, of the, the strong leadership that Michal is providing for Fianna Fáil.
4: Now, uh, I absolutely agree with you. That bounce effect is usually there in the summer, so, so won't dispute that one. But I would say that um, lots of people within your own party, particularly um, a couple of months back or certainly last year, were calling for an election. They seemed to be uh, shouting for one, in fact. Mm. And yet, uh, Micheál Martin continued with the Confidence and Supply Agreement and it, it didn't go down well at that time. So, what has changed now do you think?
2: Well, I think as well, the public because we have such a saturation of British media available in Ireland and they can see the lunacy of what's happening across the water, they can see the poor leadership the likes of Boris Johnson um, and the actual disharmony and disorganisation that that economy is being plunged into because of irresponsible uh, political leadership or lack thereof that when they see someone like Hall actually being responsible being steady that it's actually um, resonating with the public and I think that compare and contrast between the two um, neighbouring governments and neighbouring parliaments is actually providing people with the base to say you know what we've got a sensible approach to how we're doing business here we like what we're hearing from Michal Martin from Fianna Fáil, and there's a steady approach and there's a steady return of support to Fianna Fáil as a result of that as well and I think that helps the narrative when we're trying to explain because sometimes politics we're nearly reducing politics to the Trump style of tweets to one-liners it's a whole myriad of greys it's far more nuanced and I think people I still have great confidence in our electorate here that they actually take the time to actually go to read opinion pieces, to make up their own judgments, and those polls are a reflection of, of that now as well.
4: Yeah, and when you see, as you say, a 4% rise you would have to uh, think that Micheál Martin's stock is rising. Um, but I'm hearing it and, and seeing it this morning as, you know, did the leader know best? Did he know what he was at despite, as you say, the backbenchers giving him a hard time? He was uh, he was holding with his policy. He was holding with his plan to stay with the confidence and supply. And is it just paying off
9: for him now?
2: Well, I, I I do smile every time I hear you know these unnamed backbench reports as well because I'm at those parliamentary party meetings every week, uh, and sometimes you come out and you think, God, we're all at each other's throats. Uh, there is a very good team ethos within Fianna Fáil. We had our thinking last week in Gori and I have to say the mood among the camp uh, was very, very positive and there's a good there's a good team ethos going in there. We've got a team of 45 TDs. We want to come back with a much enlarged team. That was the message resonating as well and we're going to do that on the basis of actually highlighting where Fianna Fáil strengths are, where the actual failure in government uh, across a whole myriad of things. You talk about them here every week, Michael as well. In terms of health, in terms of education, you've seen my colleague Thomas Byrne talk about the complete Failure on special needs, uh, supports for education. My office is inundated on the issue of home help. We've now got a 96% increase in people waiting for home health care in County Meath. I mean, that's criminal. It's absolutely. When you think that in our Lady or Lords across the road, there's something like 46 people waiting in acute beds that can't be discharged because there's no step-down facilities. It takes €6,000 a week to actually care for that person in the bed, yet €550 a week would provide the home help support. And I am just inundated in my office in that and in Navin with people who can't get that support because the HSE and the Department of Health, as usual, have uh, overshot the budget which didn't account for properly last October.
4: I have heard it described that the ageing population and, as you say, the crisis in home care is like a tsunami coming mm-hmm. towards us and we're not actually addressing it uh, at all. But to, to go back to the politics for a moment, I mean, it, we could be cynical and say it is in Mihail Martin's interest to linger in office longer and to support the, 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 uh, the conference and supply, regardless of how uncomfortable that might be. Because, you know, the uh, government then can take the flack on Brexit, on the hospital trolleys, on the ageing crisis and all of that and so on. And even as the winter progresses, this is only going to get worse and linger in office and let them take the heat and then do your business in the new year is that the plan when no. will the election be
2: do you think I, I mean we've been very clear we gave um, a commitment uh, to see this particular budget out and remember the budget is being held in a couple of weeks but then of course you also have the Finance Act the Social Welfare Act they all have to be passed as well so that brings you up uh, to the end of this particular year and that was the, the commitment that they got uh, from us in terms of the facilitation of this doll. it's not a support of the government it's a facilitation of the doll. now it's up to them uh, to man up to to do their business properly uh, Properly, and of course, the converse of this is: if we were to pull the plug before this stall uh, resumed tomorrow, uh, the conversation between me and you this week would, you know, what are you at? Why are you being so irresponsible at a time of 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 gravity for our country? Uh, so I think that we have shown that level of responsibility that I think people are able to make the adjudication on when they see the lunacy of Boris and Co and Gove and all of those guys who care not a whit uh, for the welfare of people's lives across the water, that there's a little bit of real leadership and responsibi- responsibility being shown on this side of the of the water and that Michal's doing that on behalf of Fianna Fáil.
4: Now there was a concern there at one stage that uh, Mihal Martin was going to be the only Fianna Fáil, uh, leader in history who who never became Taoiseach. Do you think that's going to change?
2: I always believed this man was going to produce the goods and that's going right back to 2011 and I was a candidate in that uh, particular election which was, you know, a near wipeout for ourselves and right from the get-go in that particular summer of 2011 he went back out on the road making sure that he was building the party back up. I remember him coming down to Navan and addressing a crowd of 300 people in the New Grange Hotel in Navan, and saying, we're going to get behind this guy, we're going to make this guy a TD and nobody wanted to touch us back in the summer of 2011 and he came through on his promises of rebuilding the party and nobody expected uh, the performance that we got in February 2016 and I think we're going to surprise the pundits again. Polls, by the way, were up 4%. Polls actually always underestimate Fianna Fáil. We saw that in the local election. I was on Northeast Radio 1 on the morning of the election and I remember the polls had us wrong by, you know, nearly over 2% or so. So, I mean, that's, that's massive because I think when we get out and we campaign, we campaign like no other political party in this country.
4: Well, it's argued that because of the uncertainty around uh, when the election is going to be, that um, your TDs your your party members have been on campaign footing for a long time now will will they get campaign footing burnout before it's actually called
2: well the, the thing about us is that it's a bit and I always compare it to championship football our guys are just embedded in our communities there's no there's not a situation where we only just appear at the time of a particular election so in our own case we're out we're in our communities we're down meeting people and that's a constant engagement and so that's the hallmark of Fianna Fáil people because they're already embedded in their communities, whether it be in their sporting clubs, whether it be in uh, community groups, and come election time, I can tell you no one's more prepared than our people.
4: If you were to call it yourself, Shane Cassells, when would you say the election will be?
2: Well, I think you know, an election is inevitable, we're heading towards that. Um, it's just a ca- case of when, and so there's no point putting a, a, a particular date in it. But I think you know, we're, we're looking obviously at at some point uh, from the spring on of, of next year, and I think you know, everybody's going to look forward to it. no more so than the public who get to have their say. And I hope that resonates loudly.
4: And you think the confidence in supply will hold till then? You're we are confident we, that as well?
2: We, we gave a commitment to facilitate uh, the passage of a budget. And I have to say that in the course of the negotiations over the next few weeks, there's going to be huge pressure now on Pascal Donoghue, on Michael Darcy, on Leo Radker, to actually deliver on things like home help, things that actually matter to people. The housing, I heard Fergus down on here yes, or earlier with yourself, The man is living in cuckoo land, if he thinks the housing thing is back on any kind of even keel. It is an absolute criminal situation and it's not just the issue. And we discussed this last week in terms of affordable housing. In terms of the people that cannot actually ascertain a mortgage. 20 years ago, the average age at which someone would buy their own home starting off was 26. I was around that age myself when I got my first mortgage. That's now up at 37. That is absolutely criminal that we've got people living at home still who can't get out either of uh, living at home with their parents because they can't afford to actually get the mortgage or paying extortionate rents as well, double what you would pay in a These mortgage. These are
4: ma- major issues and obviously it's the job of the opposition to oppose and that's what you're doing and obviously you have highlighted those things very strongly and well. What will you do now? Recess, back tomorrow, mm-hmm. back to school, back to term time. What are you going to actually uh, undertake to do yourself in in the coming term?
2: Well, in in particular on that first one, starting off, Dara O'Brien has got a range of bills being brought forward on the whole affordable housing scheme, and that's a, a very big one for us on health as well on home help. We need to see a realistic budget put in place that actually can last twelve months, not one that runs out in the middle of the year. And this kind of false voodoo economics that Finnegale continuously come forward with when it comes to issues such as health and housing has to stop. And I think that people are going to get the opportunity to make the adjudication on the fact that the budgetary matters being put forward are not actually reflective of the scenario. But this budget is
4: going to be the toughest one ever because of Brexit and because of the all uncertainty around it. It is going to be a, a, a Brexit budget and it is going to be the most uncertain thing ever regardless. And that's out of the control of the current government because of all of the uncertainty.
2: Certainly. Um, you have to then take account of why a huge amount of money has been eaten up in the parcel of the fiscal space that was available to this particular minister because they made a hames at the Children's Hospital and are now having to put in money to bail themselves out on that. Something that the Taoiseach said a number of years ago would cost half a billion is heading for over two.
4: All right, well, that's where we have to leave it. Shane we will hear no more, loads more about that, no doubt, as the term continues. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM Still to come on the programme the potential for an independent agency to enforce child maintenance but first we're going back to the beef crisis and we're joined now on the line by Joe Healy IFA President. Good morning Joe. Good morning. A very busy time for you. Thank you. We appreciate you you taking our call. Now, we heard this morning from a reporter giving us the update on everything that transpired over the weekend. But one of the queries that keeps coming up and our our listeners have been uh, sending us texts and messages about how it is all splintering, how the independent farmers, the beef plan... Obviously, as the as the Farmers Association, you've represented these people for many years. Why do you think, Joe Healy, they're actually splintering so much, and all of these in other groups emerging? And as we see all the confusion around uh, whether an agreement or not has been accepted, probably because of that.
9: Well, look, I, I think uh, actually our members in the IFA have increased over the last three to four years, uh, but that's really neither here nor there. I think the important thing here is that farmers' incomes are on the floor. They're on the floor because of a number of reasons. Namely, they're not getting enough from the marketplace. The price that we're getting, and I'm a farmer myself, um, I got home from the negotiations last night late. I was in the Milken parlour this morning, and I'm on my way to Dublin now because there is a huge issue of Brexit around the corner, let's not, not forget. And Absolutely. And i my UK counterpart, Manette Batters, who's the president of the UK Farmers, I'm meeting her in Dublin in about an hour's time and we're going up to visit a farm on the border and um, been back down for the ploughing over the next three days. But all of the negotiations over the past few days, you know, we're we're negotiating in the shadows of Brexit. We're negotiating in the shadow of an event that's the greatest threat and the greatest challenge to Irish agriculture in any of our lifetimes. And, you know, if that goes wrong well, everything that we've been talking about for the last few days pales into insignificance. But and there's, the
4: more- that is indisputed and obviously it is a very, very stressful time and, and the beef farmers are clearly feeling all of this and more because of the pricing. But but coming back to the, the agreement that we hope is there and hope will be will be availed of, um, do you think these other groups will actually take the advantages that the agreement gives them and, and try and see it as a step and right direction?
9: Uh, Well, I I hope, and in fairness now to every one of the groups that was around the table yesterday, you know, uh, six out of the seven groups said very clearly that we go out to our members and try and recommend us. And I would say, and I want to be very fair to the other group that didn't say that, but what they did say was that they accepted what was on the table and they would go out they would recommend it to the their, the people that they were representing that were at the gates, but that inevitably it was up to the people at the gates to make up their own minds. And that's the way I took the message yesterday and it might have got uh, twisted. Some, And I was around the table and I wasn't sitting too far away from them. And everyone that walked around the table walked for over 30 hours in the best interest of Irish farmers to get the best deal that we felt possible. Um, and like... Nearly everyone that was around the table were farmers, were dependent on agriculture for a living, and I hope that farmers will read the document, will see that it's a step in the right direction. And um, you know, a lot of farmers will talk about the base price and the fear of factories pulling the base price over the next uh, week, ten days, if they get back to uh, normal work, and that that will eat up the the additions that was got in the bonuses. Now. I would like to think that the factories won't drop the base price and I would urge them not to drop the base price because uh, that would send out a very, very wrong signal. Do you feel, uh,
4: Joe Healy, having been at those meetings all over the weekend, Mm -hmm. do you feel you got everything that was there to be got? Do you think there was anything left in the room or do you really feel you got the best possible deal going out there?
9: Well, I think there were two huge issues there that uh, we all spoke about. Obviously, every one of us would love to have talked about base price and tried to negotiate a base price upwards. We did talk about base price, but we weren't allowed and were precluded by law from negotiating a base price in those circumstances. And
4: that's because of the competition and consumer protection and the, the, that yes, sort it, of issues, yes.
9: Competi- uh, competition law, and everyone appreciated that, even though we did discuss base price and the need for it to move upwards, and above all Orla, the need for factories not to take advantage uh, if the gates were allowed to open again and drop the base price. So I think farmers have the opportunity here now to call the factories bluff, see what they'll do over the next few days because what we've also built into the negotiations and built into the agreement is a commitment to for Borbia to develop a, a beef market index. And what we hope that that will do will bring a lot more transparency, not only of the beef chain, from farmer to processor to retailer to consumer, but also in relation to the beef markets in the UK and right across Europe, so that our farmers here we'll be able to see, well, this is what the prices are doing across Europe. This is what the prices are doing in the markets that we're putting our beef into. And if the markets are rising there, well, then we should be rising as well. Now, um, you,
4: you suggested that um, you're hoping that the base price agreement will be agreed to the meat processors. Did you get a sense from, you said, everybody around the table from the farming side was was there with an open mind, you feel? Was the meat industry equally open, do you feel? Do you feel that they will respect what happened happened behind closed
9: doors? Well, the beef, those were, were bilateral meetings that each of us met individually with, uh, each of us as farm groups and Meat Industry Ireland and the processors met individually with the chairman and the minister. Yesterday morning, um, I called all the farm groups together and then we agreed to go in and meet by our, uh, in a plenary session with the minister and the chairman of the group of Meat Industry Ireland wasn't involved in that And, um, you know, that's how the negotiations took place this time round, because they had broken down. Well, I suppose they hadn't broken down, but there wasn't proper agreement got the last time when everyone, when both sides were around the table.
4: Now, another item that came up, I know, was part of the discussions was this idea of the task force. How far did you get on that, a beef market task force? Is that what you're referring to when you talk about the Board BIA index? Is that connected with that?
9: Well, in, in, a, in a small way, but I think the the Borbia Index would be, borbia as an independent group, just assimilating the information from right across Europe and the UK and all the markets where we put our beef into and that are very important to us. Uh, and that could give us a better idea and more transparency around what the markets are doing, where price should be going. Because, look, farmers are business people. We understand markets. We understand that they're increasing, well then we should be getting a piece of that and if they're decreasing we might have to accept that as well. Up to now we haven't really had enough information on that so hopefully from now on, and that's something that can be developed fairly soon and if if the farmers can have more transparency, but we also need more transparency in the beef food chain. For example, everyone knows what the farmers is getting like most of your listeners at this stage can't help but have noticed that beef farmers are getting about 350 a kilo just to round it, five, yes. three fifty a kilo of a base price. Everyone knows what Orla or Mick or Pat or Maureen or paying when they go to the retailer to to buy their beef, but no one knows what happens in the middle from the processor. And the retailers the
4: retailer. were not specifically not at these meetings.
9: No, but we have asked. Uh, we had uh, a meeting with Michael Dowling, who was the original independent chairman, but he was away this weekend, and we have asked him and the minister to seek and secure meetings with the retailers, particularly in the UK, because, you know, it's one thing to talk about retailers in Ireland, but uh, less than, well, about 10% of our beef that we produce here in Ireland is sold in Ireland, and less than 10% of of our beef is sold through the retail units here in Ireland, whereas in the UK, we put 52% of our beef into the UK last year. So it's the retailers in the UK... That um, we urged the, the chairman to meet and just go through it with them, and just to to, to get more transparency. We also have asked um, last Monday week IFA put out uh, a statement calling on the ministers to set up an independent commission of inquiry, so that those people, the retailers and the processors, will be compelled to give answers to questions that they wouldn't have to just or- an ordinary person.
4: Now, I think uh, the Minister Michael Creed alluded to this when he said that specifically he was trying to address structural imbalances in the sector. I think that's another way for saying the dominance of certain processors and retailers, isn't it?
9: Well, it is, and that's what we hope he means by it, and I think that's what he means by it, because they have, and like, you know, the the retail price to the consumer, very often the, the retailer's, heavily, uh, well, they run heavy discounting um, on beef because beef would be, they're quite happy to use it as a loss leader and research would have shown that shoppers with meat in their basket spend four times more than shoppers without meat in their basket. So, you know, it's used as a loss leader but it's not viable from a farmer's point of view and it's not sustainable and that's why we need, um, we need those type things to stop.
4: All right. Well, then finally, Joe Healy, what do you think will happen now in the next 24, 48 hours?
9: Well, look, I know that there are a certain amount of farmers entrenched and uh, some people would say to me, we wanted four euro. It's just not possible at the moment to get four euro. It's not available in any of the markets across Europe that we're supplying beef into. But what I would urge farmers is to read the document, examine it, whatever questions they might have to ask, any of us can be contacted very easily and to contact us, have a chat about it and see where we go because we have got a number of things there that will put the beef industry in a better place. It mightn't put it in a place that farmers want straight away, but it's very much a step in the right direction. We've got stuff that's uh, like the bonuses that can be implemented immediately and that would probably equate to an extra €30 an animal. We have mentioned and we've given a very clear message to the factories not to interfere with the base price if, uh, and not to try and pull it backwards, if anything move it forward but we've also got issues going forward in relation to that price index uh, in relation to a quality payment uh, grid review by Chagask and also in relation to the market force that I would hope each of those three areas would put farmers in a stronger position
4: So you still have work cut out for you but some progress hopefully uh, made there uh, in the last uh, few
9: days well, there's a lot, there's, there is a lot of work to do. But what I would urge farmers, like, there are farmers that have done a good job on the picket lines, but there are also farmers now at this stage that have supported them by not selling their cattle, but who need to sell their cattle because there's everything from the silage contractor bill to be paid to college fees to be paid to, you know, this time of year land in certain parts of the country has got very wet, and rather than put cattle back into a shed, it might suit farmers better just to send them to the factory.
4: All right. Well, uh, hopefully they're listening to you there. That's Joe Healy, IFA president. Thank you for joining us this morning. We take a break. Michael,
9: Michael Reed,
0: Reed
4: on, on LMFM. FM. Now, in the whole area of child maintenance after separation or divorce, we're decades behind our neighbours across Europe. And that's according to the one family agency, formerly known as Cherish, which supports lone parents. And they've looked for a separate and independent statutory child maintenance agency for some time now. And it seems to be moving closer, something that has been welcomed by CEO Karen Kiernan, who joins us now. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. Now, um, Minister Regina Doherty has said she's open to the idea. Is this good news?
10: Yeah, it is. After um, we launched a a position paper on the need for child maintenance and some of the difficulties that parents out there have been experiencing, um, there was some media coverage in the Irish Times, which she saw, so she tweeted um, that she is open to looking at or This is, you know, the, the current system isn't good enough, and really, it should be changed. So, look, that's good news. Um, it, it, we'd like uh, her to start thinking in a, a practical way about how to deliver that, whether that's her or her government colleagues. But what we do know is that in Ireland, it is the issue of child maintenance is absolutely fraught with difficulty for both parents and for children who often end up worse off. Um, because of the difficulties that are there. And we're just way, way behind other countries in terms of just not supporting people.
4: Now, just to put this in context, according to your information, one in five people in Ireland live in a one-parent family. One in four families with children are are one-parent or lone-parent families. That represents about 356,000 children. So this affects an awful lot of people. It's 20% of, of the population, practically.
10: It is. Now, when you look at people who parent on their own, many of them are sharing parenting. And this yes. is where child maintenance comes in, where there are two parents. They may be playing a very significant role in their children's lives. They could be playing a much smaller role. Then there are some people who are completely parenting on their own, where the other parent is absent or perhaps were never around to start with. So, But for the vast majority of those 350,000 children, um, there probably is a, a two parents involved somehow in their lives. And what we increasingly see in one family is that people, more people are sharing parenting, more people are trying to stay involved in their children's lives. But sometimes they have difficulty because it can be very conflictual. Um, And so issues around access to children or maintenance can just cause problems. So some people are able to come to agreements and make it work. But for many people, they really benefit from some supports and services. Um, and again, this is normal in other countries and we just don't have it here in Ireland.
4: Now, you had a line in your material, which I thought was very, very um, effective. And it is when families separate, the first responder shouldn't be a solicitor. That's stark, isn't it? If that is the case, that the only person you can turn to is a solicitor at these times. And I don't mean that it's any disrespect to solicitors, but no. I just mean it's not the place the conversation should start.
10: No, and the difficulty is in Ireland, because we don't have um, a, a, a child and family support service like they have in the UK, for example, which help people who are going through private family law proceedings, is that we've privatized this. So someone is just let off, they're going through a separation or they're going through some kind of um, issue that they're thinking, how do I resolve this with the, the other parents of my child? And instead of there being a, a range of non-adversarial support services to keep people out of court, there's very very little available in Ireland. And so people end up asking around, "What will I do?" You know, and for many people it ended up in court whether they wanted to or not. And so people often end up will often start with a solicitor instead of ending with a solicitor. So this is what we're saying is it's better to work out what's right for your family yourselves rather than go to court and maybe get 10 or 15 minutes with a judge who doesn't know you and doesn't know your children and doesn't know what's going on.
4: And prior there's to that, ways. obviously, some sort of mediation would be the way to go. But what access is there for families to get to a, a mediation service before they would have to go to the legal service?
10: Yes, yeah, so the mediation service is one of the few services we have in Ireland. And there's the family mediation service and it's free and it's a state funded, state provided service. But it is not everywhere around the country and there can be quite long waiting lists. Now, some people can also pay privately to go for mediation if they can afford that. So we do have that, but that's still very little compared to the kinds of things that are available in other countries, such as um, parenting programs or parenting information um, sessions, counselling and therapeutic services, child contact centres, assessments for families if needed about what's going on in the, in the family so that the judge actually knows. And of course, mediation is not suitable where there's been domestic abuse within the family. It's, it's It can't be used. Um, so there have to be other situations and there are other alternative dispute re- resolutions, um, I suppose, offerings that people, that private solicitors out there are trying to pilot and get off the ground. But there isn't that kind of infrastructure from the state to help people separate well. Because what we see is People want to do the best for the children, but they may have different views about what they may be. They may be really hurt or angry with their former partner, and that just causes ongoing problems. So unless they can sometimes even a short amount of help, focus on the children, let's let's look at what's really important to everyone. Let's come up with an agreement that everyone can live with. That's so much better than potentially paying a huge amount of money in legal fees and blocking up court systems when people are in and out because often child maintenance is not paid.
1: I'll You're talking there about obviously
4: the, uh, the the heightened emotions at these times and it's not a, a place or a time to make good decisions. And that's where the separation, the, the mediation actually would, would, would support. But one of your studies has shown that 58% of people in this scenario have to go to court to get a maintenance order. So it's a high percentage end up having to go to court to get some sort of um, serious or binding agreement rather than the gentle mediated we're all playing ball type agreement. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, now some people may go
10: to court to get a mediated agreement enforced, you know, so perhaps there was mediation. But we did a study earlier in the year with thousands, over 1,000 parents uh, answered an online survey for us. And of those, 58% said they had to go to court to, in order to um, resolve, I suppose, their issue around child maintenance. Very, very few went to mediation. But actually what we see if you talk and look at the statistics from the court service is that many people are back looking for enforcement of the child maintenance order. And we don't know how many people just don't bother going back. But what we hear all the time on our helpline is that there is an order in place and it's not paid. And if someone is on a social welfare payment and this happens, they're actually cut that amount and they're not given it. So if somebody does not pay maintenance, that family is down a significant amount of money on a weekly basis.
4: And obviously that is where an independent agency could hopefully have the powers to look into all of that and to actually support with the uh, enforcement. That's where we have to leave it. Uh, thank you indeed for joining us um, this morning. That's all we have time for on the programme today. Um, my thanks to um, Mary Kearns, Maggie McGuire and Paul McKenna on sound. Uh, thank you for your company. I'll be with you for the next couple of weeks as uh, Michael Reid takes his well-deserved rest. And hopefully uh, I'll have you with me again again tomorrow until then bye-bye
3: the michael reed show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on lmfm to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie
6: hey i'm ryan reynolds at Mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot